ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, Kirsty Melville here. Thanks for joining me today for the History Listen. Magdalene laundries for fallen women date back to 12th century Europe. They were Catholic-run institutions to reform wayward women, known as Magdalens, through strict religious observance and unpaid work. Shocking revelations have come to light recently about the conditions these women endured, particularly in Ireland. But this was somewhere else, not Australia. That is, until writer Donna Rabella discovered that a Magdalene laundry once existed near her home in Sydney at so-called Discovery Point. Any trace of the laundry's history, or those who lived there, seems to have been erased. Or has it? In today's program, Donna goes in search of the missing Magdalens, and she stumbles across a hidden story and reveals a very personal connection. I live in Sydney, a stone's throw from the Cooks River. Like many locals, I love discovering its bird life and walking tracks and history, which is why I'm on a Cooks River walking tour with historian Professor Ian Tyrrell. As you probably know, it was originally named for Captain Cook. There is a plaque to Captain Cook. Has anyone ever seen, has anyone seen that plaque? We're at Tempe, a suburb on lands owned by clans of the Eora Nation. The name that the Aboriginal people are said to have given to the river is not accepted as the name of the river. Galliari, that's right, yeah. Absolutely, now that's it. Which means place of the pelican. It means the Cook's River, or Cook's River. Okay, now look, the most famous thing about this is over here. Ian points across the river to a white cottage in a park at Discovery Point. This is Tempe House, and this is what the area is named after. The colonial villa is hemmed in by the supersized apartment towers beside Walleye Creek Station. So that is the house that Alexander Brody Spark built for himself. It was kind of like a holiday home for him. It was away from the hustle and bustle of, of downtown Sydney town as it was at that time. I'd been to Tempe House. It's fully restored, heritage listed, so is the chapel next to it. That chapel was actually built as part of the Catholic Church takeover of the area long after Spark had died and became a Magdalene refuge of the Catholic Church for fallen, in inverted commas, women. But the news about a local Magdalene refuge came out of the blue. This was a correctional facility for them in the sense that it was a place where they would, would do hard work in a laundry. I knew this song by Joni Mitchell. This next song is called The Magdalene Laundries, and uh, for those of you who don't know it, a little I knew that the late singer Sinead O'Connor had been in a girl's home attached to one. In 1972, the Magdalene Laundries were closed in Ireland. Most towns had one, and basically it was a prison for females. Some of them were just pregnant girls, some pregnant by their own father by their old priests, uh, but the worst crime of all... I was aware of inquiries into Magdalene laundries in, in Ireland. ...and all was kind of hush-hush, but in uh, 96 tractors unearthed over 100 graves, women just kind of thrown into the ground, named simply Magdalene of the Tears, anonymously. And so the scandal 
and the outrage rose again. Had read about distressing revelations. But we had Magdalene Laundries here too. How come I didn't know about this? I think it's a common problem that a lot of history relating to women has never received the attention it deserves. Dr Kelly Toole wrote her thesis on Australian Catholic refuges for penitent women. In the 19th century, the Catholic Church established Magdalene laundries in every Australian state. Why isn't this history more widely known? Hidden stories of women is sadly not at all uncommon. And sometimes you just need that one individual personal story to really have that cut through into popular culture and media. Think of the case of of Philomena that became a book and a movie in Ireland. And we just haven't had that sort of individual story to make that possible here. I was an unmarried girl. I just turned 27. When they sent me to the sisters... I was born out of wedlock in the 1960s to a teenager from Irish Catholic stock. Luckily, we weren't in Ireland, but the stigma still stuck. When my mother later married my father, she wore a black dress. So this hidden history feels kind of personal. I want to find out about Tempe's Magdalene Laundry and the women who lived and worked there. So I head across the river to explore Discovery Point. There's plenty of history here, according to these plaques, which say nothing about a laundry. After touring northern Greece in the 1820s, Alexander Brody Spark chose the name Tempe for his home on the banks of the Cooks River. The history here is about Tempe Estate and it was an idyllic retreat for a colonial gent. Tempe House was designed by colonial architect John Verge and built between 1833 and But one plaque mentions a different kind of retreat, one built here by the Sisters of the Good Samaritan for destitute women and girls. Alexander Brodie Spark established a pleasure garden and orchard with gardener Thomas Kirby and 13 convict labourers. Spark's garden became famed throughout the colony. The sisters owned Tempe Estate for over 100 years, but the plaque doesn't mention their institution's name or the commercial laundry that was a major source of its income. Why does the history here skirt around this? And why was the institution built? My search reveals that Tempe wasn't Sydney's first Magdalene Laundry. It was a branch of the first one, which opened in Pitt Street in the 1850s. There's a very long history of the Catholic Church institutionalising fallen women who would hopefully become penitent women. It's been tracked to at least the 12th century across Europe and then it was adopted across Australia, New Zealand, the United States. Kelly Toole describes the three-pronged mission of these institutions. One was partly protective, so it was the idea that uh, women needed protection and the world was dangerous for certain women. For working-class women in colonial Sydney, sex work was one of the few occupations available. Out of grave concern, Catholic Archbishop John Bede Polding opened a refuge for ex-sex workers in Pitt Street. 
and later created an order of religious women to run it. The Sisters of the Good Samaritan. There was also the idea that they needed to morally reform and so being around the ideal women of of nuns and learning more about religion and through prayer, they would be morally reformed and reconciled with God. The Archbishop wrote the Refuges' Rules of Observance. He modelled these on procedures in Magdalen laundries across Catholic Europe. The woman shall be instructed in the principal mysteries of religion, in the spirit of true penitence. And thirdly, that they would be reformed through hard work and gaining some skills that they would then be able to go into the community and support themselves other than through working as a, what we would now call a sex worker, but were referred to as prostitutes at the time. Employment shall be given to them proportionate to their capacity so that they may continue in it so long as shall be necessary to merit a certificate of good conduct. Polding's rules framed the women sheltering at Pitt Street and working its commercial laundry as penitents who needed to be reclaimed. But what exactly was a penitent woman? A penitent woman is really the end point of a process that women went through if they met certain criteria. When they went into the institutions, they were often referred to as fallen women. And then by the time they had gone through a reform process, living with the nuns, they were considered a penitent woman. What kinds of women were dropped into this basket? That might be women who were working as prostitutes. It might be women who were pregnant outside of marriage. It might be women who had sex with someone other than their husbands. Or even a group of of people can be as young as 12 who were considered sexually precocious and at risk of becoming a fallen woman. So when they went in, they were kind of in a state of of, uh, what was considered a a depraved state. And then after they had been uh, reformed, then they were penitent women. they understood the error of their ways and then they were sorry. Ready to do penance for their sins. They shall go to confession regularly to the confessor of the institute. Penance is both a formal process through the church of um, confessing to a priest um, and getting absolution of your sins and then being given a penance, which is something um, that you have to do as part of the recompense for what you've done and part of that process of reform and gaining forgiveness. It's also an outward manifestation of regret or sorrow for what you've done. I imagine a chapel full of women like my teenage mother internalising their depraved state. Even at the time, Polding's rules were not progressive, but they did improve upon the European model. Often with the European institutions, there was no expectation that these women would ever leave, that they would be cloistered with the nuns forever. At least in Australia, there was this idea that this was a period of reform and for many of them, there was an expectation that they would actually leave. By the 1880s, Sydney town was booming. The Pitt Street Refuge had outgrown its original premises and was hemmed in by urban and moral pollution. So the church started looking further afield. They needed a suitable rural setting in which young women who had gone in the wrong direction, that uh, had erred in some way morally or socially, could be put on a straight and narrow path. And it was common practice in the 19th century to see these institutions situated in 
either rural locations or on the outskirts of cities. Sister Gertrude Byrne from Ireland and Sister Mary Magdalene Adamson from England had been running the Roman Catholic Orphan School at Parramatta for 30 years until government funding for religious schools stopped. Certain that this was the result of sectarian bigotry, the sisters closed the orphan school and accepted a pension. But when the church decided to set up a second Magdalene laundry, the sisters took out a loan, purchased Tempe Estate, and renamed it St Magdalene's Retreat. The Freeman's Journal, a weekly Catholic newspaper, kept the flock abreast of every development. The Tempe Asylum will probably rival the best institutions of its kind in the old country. The sisters' working knowledge of the laundry at the orphan school shaped the designs of Tempe's architects. The nuns endeavour to erect the most complete laundry in the Australian colonies. Within a year, the Tempe laundry was pumping suds into the Cooks River. Women transferred from Pitt Street started sorting washing, mangling, drying, folding, ironing and packing the clothes and linen of more fortunate people and sleeping in barracks, curtained off from each other and far removed from family and friends, if they had them. The great laundry is now in working order. There are some 20 penitents in the refuge who are not only most submissive to the sisters but the hardest of hard workers. By all accounts, Sister Gertrude and Sister Mary Magdalene worked with the gusto of much younger women. They managed an ever-expanding building program, serviced a hefty debt during the 1890s Depression, and embedded St Magdalene's retreat in the hearts and social calendars of Sydney's upper crust. Lords and ladies, cardinals and captains, minor royalty and members of Parliament were devoted friends of this deserving charity and a source of financial support. They made donations and bequests, organised fundraising balls at Sydney Town Hall and frocked up for public functions. The Magdalene Refuge, opening ceremony at Tempe. Amongst trees evergreen with luxuriant foliage, a fashionable assemblage of notable citizens watched His Eminence Cardinal Moran bless the first batch of buildings. His Excellency the Governor Lord Carrington arrived in full state accompanied by his gracious and gentle consort. He praised the laundry's perfection, took out a subscription for Government House and dropped a bounteous cheque in the collection plate. A public meeting was later held on the spacious lawn. The exclusion of government funding had caused the Catholic community to feel besieged. But from a platform decked with flags, flowers and ferns, eminent men declared St Magdalene's retreat a moral victory over many devils. They praised the sisters to high heaven. But when pointing at the penitents, they punched down. 
Like the prodigal, the repentant Magdalene has come to the door of the asylum clad in rags, a living reality of shame and woe. Reading Cardinal Moran's speech, I imagine women like my teenage mother singing Ave Maria through gritted teeth. But no matter how repulsive she may be, she receives the kiss of peace. She is told to wipe out her sins by sorrow, forget the past, and be governed by religious sisters till they become models of industry, docility, and obedience. Today, these speeches are hard to read. Why didn't these pious leaders make an allowance for things like poverty or unemployment or rape? It was very much individualised and very much seen as a moral failing. Now we would potentially look at a group of these women and our first thoughts might be for whether they had been an experience of other sexual offence, whether they had been neglected, whether they had been abused in some way. But there was very little thought about the social causes at the time and, and the very limited options for working class women and very narrow views about how a woman should behave. And certainly for women who engaged in sex work, there are statements at the time from the police and church officials saying, well, I've never heard of a case where people have gone into prostitution because they were poor. It's because they're depraved. They love pleasure and they're idle and they don't want to do work. Branded as a Jezebel I was not bound for heaven I'd be cast in shame Into the Magdalene Laundries The laundry contributed to the pollution in the Cooks River and that is often forgotten Uh, but it wasn't the major source of pollution in the area and you have the tramway And, of course, you get the development of Tempe Tip, which, when the wind blew in that direction from the northeast, would also have interfered with uh, washing. I can't help thinking there's a deeply symbolic aspect to the laundries as well, that idea of women who needed cleansing and reform and undertaking hour after hour this heavy commercial laundry work. Traditionally, Christianity divided all women into impure and pure, Magdalens and Madonnas. But only in Magdalene laundries did these two extremes of womanhood live together. Retreating from the outside world and worlds apart from each other. The sisters shall be very careful to avoid all familiarity with the penitents, never permitting them to speak of their past life, nor ever making any inquiry of them concerning it. Who the penitents were and what they'd been through was not documented or discussed. But Tempe's records tell us that, until the turn of the century, many were daughters of working-class Irishmen, and many struggled with addiction, or were homeless at a time when it was a crime. However, when the Good Samaritan sisters moved to Tempe, they kept the emphasis on penitence. Following the Archbishop's rules of observance, Their regime was semi-monastic and harsh. A strict code of conduct was enforced and silence was compulsory. They were expected to remain silent at many times during the day and also at night. And this is actually another feature that you found in 19th century penitentiaries. And by keeping silent, the inmates would dwell on their inner thoughts and not be distracted by external matters. 
The women's conversations were supervised, and while they sorted, washed, mangled, dried, folded, ironed and packed, the sisters lifted their spirits and lightened their load with prayer. In the washroom, the dirty linen begins the course of treatment, which is to send it back to the world white and crisp and immaculate as all good linen ought to be. Freeman's Journal, 1900. By now, St Magdalene's Laundry has been pumping suds into the Cook's River for over 10 years. In a description of a visit, this Catholic reporter assures his readers that the Tempe penitents aren't overworked. The dirty linen is bathed in the wooden troughs, where on washing boards, under vigorous hands, it first learns the benefits of massage. Laundry work was hard labour. Often saturated, women stood for hours on wet floors in stifling heat, washing everything by hand except quilts and sheets which were washed by machine. Dry rooms, with irons resting on coke heaters, could be just as dangerous. From trough to washing is but a toss of the bucket. And here it wallows in generous soap suds and ever-changing hot water, until it is purged of all ill humours. The workload was variable, but if the laundry cart arrived with bulging bags of hospital sheets or hotel linen, it was all stops out. Charity laundries like Tempe always won the right not to pay the women a wage for their labour, nor were they subject to regulation or any form of inspection. If they remain two years and behave themselves, the sisters provide them with an outfit, give them a character reference and find them a situation. But once she'd been transformed into a true Magdalene who could be trusted, a penitent was rewarded with a character reference and a job as a domestic servant. And outside, she was on her own. Tempe's records show that women often absconded or were expelled or asked to leave. So success rates of 90% were inflated, possibly to keep benefactors and the public on side. But what did Tempe's residents have to say about all this? Why is their perspective absent from the record? It's all from the view of the Catholic Church, so it's very hard to to get that in into what the the experience was like, who these women were, what actually really happened to them after they left the institution, what that experience was like while they were there, what it was like to feel that sense of shame. Did they internalise what they were told about how bad their behaviour was and how they could become better? We know from the inquiries in Ireland that Magdalens had no opportunity to document their experience and that a constant fear of stigma silenced them, often for life. So as Professor Ian Tyrrell said... It was easy to find out about the ideological premises and impacts of the enterprise, but it was hard to see what was going on on the ground. I return to Discovery Point with maps and aerial photographs. Work out the location of the laundry and dormitories. Plot their dimensions. They were immense. Would have cast a long shadow over the chapel. I want to stop people strolling with dogs, 
point out the buildings that are gone, the women that are missing from their own history. But I go back to the documents, look for glimpses of what happened on the ground. Moments when the filter of Victorian morality slipped and a penitent was seen as a person. Such glimpses are rare. The odd sentence. 1890s. A visitor to Tempe is sad to see that inmates live without recreation or books. 1900s. A woman wonders what happened to four teenagers with chopped-off hair who were bundled onto a laundry cart and sent to Tempe as punishment. And then, in 1906, a Protestant newspaper reporter interviewing a woman writes... Though a stoutly built woman, she looked worn and frightened and appeared to have led a very hard life. I, May Gould, am 25 years of age. I was born in England and brought to Australia when I was an infant by my parents. In 1906, May Gould escaped from St Magdalene's retreat with two others who had homes to go back to. When the sisters refused to let May Gould back in, she asked a stranger in the street for a job. I married William Ernest Gould nine years ago. My husband died seven years ago. We had one child. After her escape, May Gould was taken in by a Mrs Cole of Marrickville and employed as a domestic servant. And not long after, escorted by Mrs Cole to the office of the Watchman newspaper. The Watchman was the mouthpiece of the Australian Protestant Defence Association, militant evangelical Christians on guard against Roman Catholic institutions and influence. I desired to go to Sydney and was given a letter of introduction by Father O'Sullivan to the Tempe convent. At this time, Roman Catholics and evangelical Protestants were defensive religious minorities, fighting for a foothold in the fledgling nation. They were also fierce sectarian rivals. He said I could go out when I liked and look for a place, and I would be quite free to do so. The Protestant reporter at The Watchman has just been handed a scoop. The Tempe Laundry. Three women break free. One tells her story. I found out after I got there that there was a laundry connected to the convent. At the behest of her hosts and employers, Magul does the interview with the watchman and later makes a formal statement. Actual words of an inmate. Statement by Mrs Gould. With her new job and lodgings at stake, I can see how it might have been difficult for May Gould to refuse. I was received by Mother Superior Dominic, who took charge of the money I had, three pounds, ten shillings, and also took my clothes and other property and gave me a uniform. Inside the retreat, May Gould is quickly acquainted with the rules of observance. Whilst they are in the house, they shall dress in the mode approved of and shall be known by the name the superior shall have attached to them on the day of their admission. She's stripped of her name and belongings and given a uniform sewn on sight. Individual expression of any kind will not be tolerated. I was not put in the laundry for any offence, whatever. Maygould's past is also off-limits. Neither she nor the nuns must ever discuss it. 
After six weeks, I informed the mother superior that I desired to leave, and she stated that it was an unheard of thing. Unless a court requires otherwise, May Gould is expected to stay for two years. I fought against it and asked repeatedly to be let out. Each time I was refused. And I informed them I would escape at the first opportunity. Meanwhile, there's washing to do. I was compelled to work in the laundry from four o'clock in the morning until eight o'clock at night, with only short intervals. Hard work dampened desire to slide back into sin. I received no payment for the work done. The nuns weren't paid either and fought all efforts to make charitable laundries pay wages or comply with awards. At this laundry, in addition to adults, children are employed. In 1905, New South Wales established children's courts and magistrates began sending girls to institutions like Tempe. Girls who were neglected, uncontrollable or serving custodial sentences. They were very cruel to the state children. Sixteen arrived within a year. When the sisters admitted them, they wrote, State girl, in the register. When I left, there were about three children of about nine years of age who worked the same hours as myself. The retreat wasn't equipped for children or given any funding to provide for them. So like the fallen women they had to bunk in with, kids as young as 11 were put to work to earn their keep. One little girl lost her arm trying to save a tablecloth belonging to the Hotel Australia. The snowy linen that graces the tables of the great city hotels emerge. There was no education for the children at Tempe, and no inspector ever came to check up on them. She caught her arm and it was burnt and bruised to the elbow and had to be cut off, and now it is stitched. The tablecloth is guided between the great rollers with careful hands. For a moment or two, it is swallowed up by the huge steel monster. When the Good Samaritans set up St Magdalene's Retreat, they rejected a prison-like model. But when charity laundries had to admit troubled girls who were likely to abscond, that had to change. Doors were locked, windows were barred, and high brick walls were built. I saw a nun beating this child with a thick cane. She was going to run out, but they stopped her and put her in a pantry where she was for three hours before I saw her again. Just as you have abandoned hope of seeing the tablecloth again in the world, it begins to crawl slowly out on the other side and ready again for cut glass and silver. May Gould was on the ground in the Tempe retreat as this transition was taking place. I escaped with two other inmates... Most of the nuns were in retreat, and by an oversight, the chapel was left open without the guards at the door. I saw my opportunity and ran out, the two other girls following me. According to the Catholic newspaper, the Freeman's Journal, May Gould's story was the first negative allegation against St Magdalene's retreat. The Catholic community was outraged by yet another sectarian attack. Mother Superior fought back, and produced May Gould's prison record for petty theft. Left her credibility in tatters. What happened to May Gould next is anyone's guess. But there's much to say about May Gould's story. It's contested hidden history. It came to light because it was weaponised by fierce religious rivals. 
and it's a glimpse of a penitent, which automatically presents a problem. Classed as depraved, penitents were already systemically discredited, and May Gould, who tried to protect her future by lying about her past, would have been afforded even less credibility, especially when she was up against religious sisters who were classed as holy. However, much of what May Gould said about Tempe was verified and believed by the Watchman newspaper, and her description of living by Tempe's rules of observance is consistent with stories of former inmates of Magdalen laundries. So, while the reading of May Gould's story is contested, it still offers an extraordinary rare insight into the life of a young woman at the turn of the 20th century, trying to survive and get her life back on track. In the 1940s, St Magdalene's Retreat was renamed the Good Samaritan Training Centre. It provided out-of-home care, mainly for adolescent girls, who worked in the laundry up until 1974. Until I was 10. Until it was no longer socially acceptable. A year after the property was sold in 1988, the laundry and dormitories were demolished. But the ideology behind Magdalene Laundries didn't stop when the taps were turned off. We can still learn a lot about the way women's history has been silenced and we can still think about those institutions. And I think with these we can still think about now, about, well, are there other women that we're we're subjecting to these kind of standards? I mean, if you think of things like... um, prosecution of rape trials and that it might be a bit of a stretch but I mean in my mind we've still got these very clear views about about women and how they should act and how they their sexuality should be expressed and they can still experience huge amounts of disadvantage on that basis so maybe the history we have to accept that the stories of those individual women are lost but there's still much to learn about the way we we categorize and stereotype women that's happening now. At Parramatta Girls defied the silence by scratching messages into the laundry walls. If that happened at Tempe, we'll never know. But as I walk around Discovery Point, I keep finding traces of the women's unwillingness to be forgotten. And I imagine women like my bright and gorgeous teenage mother shamelessly pushing back against histories that try to hide them. The Missing Magdalens was written by Donna Abella. The producer was Ros Blewett and the sound engineer was John Jacobs. Many thanks to Professor Ian Tyrrell, Dr Kelly Toole, Bonnie Durack and Leonie Sheedy. And if you'd like to find more information, then just head to the History Listen webpage. I'm Kirsty Melville. Thanks for your company. See you next time. Fallen women sentenced into dreamless drudgery. Why do they call this heartless place our lady of charity? Oh, charity. 
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.